This week on An Hour With Flower, I'm joined by a man who's got over 40 laser titles to his name. He's finished in the top 10 at the Senior Europeans four times and he's finished in the top 16 at the Senior Worlds five times. He's also the class measurer for the UKLA. I'm all talking about Alan Davis. Alan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And yourself, Ben? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Now into February. The year's going quick, isn't it? It certainly is. I'm very frustrated by lockdown. Um, in some respects, not sailing in this cold weather is, is a bonus, but uh, I'd much rather be out in the water and uh, sailing, as I'm sure all of us would wish. It's a bit restrictive, and you actually sail at Oxford Sailing Club, which is a lake, which uh, you've not been able to get out on the water recently. No, not since since before Christmas, when we went into uh, initially Tier 3 and then Tier 4, and obviously the current lockdown. It's uh, not been sailing for a while now, unfortunately, um, and, and nor the option to go down to Stokes Bay, which I do uh, quite regularly as well. It's uh, unfortunate times, but hopefully there's going to be a government announcement again soon i'm sure and hopefully some restrictions will be lifted and we will be able to get back racing but i actually first sort of met you at the the qualifiers you being a master sailor you're still right up there a qualifier i think the first qualifier did uh, me and you were very close on the water if i'm not if i my memory serves me correctly uh Maybe it's a master's thing. Your memory sounds better than mine. I don't recall that. Yeah. I certainly remember you from the early, yes, when I came back, yes, because I hadn't done any um, actual qualifiers prior to that since, uh, I think, 97, when I I had a seventh, but I was uh, two points off being fourth in that one, and that was my last qualifier that I had done before I restarted them in the last couple of years. What I think is great about sailing and laser sailing as well is that, the master sailors are able to you know keep up with the youth sailors and it's great how you have that battle between the young and old at you know in the same boat same equipment and on in different conditions all the time i think that that's the beauty of the boat we sail it is absolutely fantastic how you know being a strict one design it comes down to uh the, the sailor, um, first and foremost, I, I think, uh, you know, certainly nowadays, um, a lack of fitness, there's very little excuse for that. Um, old age, certainly I, I, I notice it from my training on the concept too. It certainly catches up with you, but um, it, it's, um, no, it's, it's a great leveller. Um, that, that's the beauty of our sport. It's a hugely great leveller. You mentioned about the concept two rowing machine. We'll get on to sort of the fitness that you do now. Bit later, but um, you, you were telling me before you didn't actually come from a sailing family as such. How did you start out in sailing back in the late seventies? No, well, I, my my background, yes, I come from non sailing family. I, I'm um, I was a very good middle distance runner, and uh, I got glandular fever, and I was told if I kept training, because I was training nine times a week at school. Uh, that I'd have relapses the rest of my life. So I, I got uh, introduced to sailing at that point through two friends at school. Well, a little bit before that I had, but it's when I sort of got sort of more heavily into it, particularly one of my friends called a guy called Jim Clayton, where um, down at Hailing Island, I would borrow his uh, father's solo and he'd be out in uh, a moth at the time. They were all displacement moths at that point. 
and I learned the hard way. Lots of capsizes, lots of um, you know, knocks on the way, but uh, bit by bit I, I learned. Um, and then <clears throat> at that point, the laser was growing so rapidly, it became the obvious boat to, uh, to get. And so I got myself a laser. Uh, I was living in Oxford and uh, a guy called Tim Tavner was the person who uh, really um, got me going with the sailing. He uh, um, wanted to win the youth nationals. He went on and did that. Uh, he, he just needed a, a good punch bag to uh, play with on route. And I was the beneficiary of, of that because it certainly taught me a huge amount in a very short space of time. So you actually elevated your game as well, I'm sure, with training with somebody who eventually went to win the youth nationals the following year. Um, most definitely. I was, um, yes, I was not very good and I, I learned so much. And in fact, every day I sail, I learn more. And that's something else which is unique about sailing, how you continue to learn so much. Um, I'm certainly a lot much smarter sailor than I used to be. I was just uh, very keen in those days. And what actually gravitated you towards the laser and not another boat? Um, it, it, I think it was really just, it was it was growing so rapidly. It was in all the yachting press so regularly. Um, it, it was just the, the, the natural boats to buy um, because there was little in way of alternatives. You know, there were some quite interesting boats. So I did think about buying a toy at one point, uh, which was a sliding seat single-hander, but uh, I'm so glad I didn't. Uh, you know, like so many of those uh, development classes, they it, it, it started and it died very, very quickly was the, laser had really established itself and it had taken over from the okay at that point as being a um, you know the single-hander to have i think the simplicity of the laser attracts people where you don't need to be able to have buy all the high fancy gear like you get on some of these developmental classes and everyone's using the same equipment and it leads to really close racing yeah, yes, no, I completely agree with that. It's, you know, the, the, the fundamental rule for the laser is um, absolutely key. Um, you know, the fact that every boat is the same um, and it's, it, it just lends itself to all some fantastic racing. Um, you know, I've never come from a background of uh, being able to buy boat speed. It's always been hard-earned, hard-graft, out-training, either on the water or on the gym. Yeah, and I think that's a big part about sailing is you've just got to put in the time and put in the grind both on and off the water to to get the results and back in back in the 80s do you remember your first international event um well first proper international event was the uh, 1982 europeans in greece um and you know things were very very different uh, then as um Top two Brits at that event was Mark Littlejohn, who people may well uh, know, and then also uh, Simon Bose Cole as well. I think they got fifth and sixth between them at that. Um, you know, there were the days before I, I lacked the true consistency, and the strongest win I was the top Brit, and the lightest win I was the top Brit. Um, but I think I was fourth Brit overall when it came to the uh, um, the, the end results. It, uh, Brits always have very strong representatives in the laser class. You actually race with quite a lot of what are now coaches nowadays yes yes in fact um over the years that's the beauty of the laser it's it's um been a feeder class for so many um professional sailors and uh, you know things like even the uh, ac36 at the moment i take uh 
it's a huge pleasure in um, watching all the teams there because I, I've sailed against uh, people on every single boat um, in, over the years. And um, even my wife, who's a, a non-sailor, she has met these guys as well. And so again, it's it's really raised her interest in, in that event. I think that's the beauty of sport and knowing people in sport, that if you know somebody on a particular team, like in the America's Cup, you sort of gain that interest, even if you haven't got that interest in watching it, if you didn't know the person on board, if that makes sense. I completely agree, yes. A few years ago, I had a, uh, a, a neck and shoulder injury, and uh, <clears throat> the physiotherapist I was using, he was Brazilian, so I happened to mention how I know Robert Scheidt, and uh, all of a sudden, completely different nature of relationship I had with with my uh, physio um, because yeah, Robert Scheidt, quite rightly, is an absolute god out in Brazil. And you must have raced against Robert Scheidt for many a year now. Yes, yes. I remember my very first time at the... Uh, uh, well, the, not the first time I really remember racing neck and neck with him was the, the Worlds in 92, I can't remember, 92, I think it was. It was in Greece, um, where I had... Peter Township, who won the event, and here we're going along, uh, we're in a port end start, it's Peter Township, you would always do, another famous Brazilian uh, laser sailor, um, going off to the left-hand side. I was wondering why I wasn't pulling away from the guys next to me, and then I realised who was alongside me, and I thought, that's probably why. I, I, have a... I did, beat, um, but, uh, did beat Robert in that, uh, that particular race, but uh, yeah, he, he beat me overall. I have a similar experience at here in 2019 where I was thinking, oh, I've got some good wind speed here and then um, looked over my shoulder because there's this boat just hanging with me. And I was like, normally, you know, if I, you know, drop the blocks and properly go for it, I can, you know, extend on the person above. I look above and it's like, oh, it's Robert Scheidt. <laughs> yeah. And then he just kept up that intensity and I just couldn't keep up with it. And I was like, right, I've... I thought I was fit and I'm still not fit enough. And, you know, he, you know, the fact that he's at his age and still performing at such a high level, I think is incredible. Well, I can say, yes, you know, his, he is, he stands out from the crowd. There's no doubt about that. At his age to be as fast as he is, is absolutely incredible. You know, the results in Lanzarote, you know, it's, it's a decent fleet there and still coming second. Um, it's, it's quite incredible. Watching him on the water, I think the, what I notice with him is he's never sat doing nothing. He's always doing something, especially when he's on the coach rib as well. He's eating whilst listening to the coach. He's not just listening to the coach. He's the whole time he's multitasking. And I think that's, you know, that, that's how he's kept at such a high level for so long. Uh, yes. I, I, I think, you know, the, the, someone like him was at five Olympic medals, you know, they, they stand out from the crowd for obvious reasons. And, uh, and talking about longevity in in the sport, like we mentioned, you actually started your first Europeans being in 1982, and you're still competing at a high level on the masters scene. You were talking as well about you start you start out being a middle distance runner, and now doing sort of a lot of stuff on the concept too. What would you say from your experience that you've changed in your approach to your fitness over the sort of 30 or so years laser sailing? Uh, well, because my background was in running, I used to always do 
a, a lot of you know, a lot of mileage. But uh, when you get older, you know, you think in terms of uh, potential for injury. So injury prevention is better than cure. Um, so I've stopped <clears throat> doing any um, a- any running of note. Um, I when the gyms were open, I was doing a um, a, a lot on the. Uh, uh, on the bike in the gyms, but um, I, I, I like the concept too. It's a bit of a love-hate relationship. It used to be a better relationship in the past when I was younger. Um, it, it's a real mental game when you want to, uh, um, you know, you, you want to uh, put in a new personal best or, or whatever. Um, but it's, it's always interesting to see how you perform against, uh, um, uh, you know, the concept two league they have in, in terms of what other people have achieved. Uh, one of my sons who uh, rode at Oxford, he, um, it can be a bit embarrassing on the short course um, races. You know, he, he, I'll be um, going full out and he won't even have his feet strapped in and will be keeping up with me. So <laughs> that can be a bit disappointing. But uh, when he's, yeah, I normally do 10,000 metres and uh, it, it's a little bit more equal there. So over the sort of longer distance, you'd say you come more into your own? Yeah, yes, most most definitely. Um, yeah, because you know, as long as it, you know, when I'm doing ten thousand meters, as long as it's saying one point something and not two point something, then I'm uh, happy if I'm cruising around that that one fifty six, one fifty eight level for ten thousand meters. That's when I'm happy. Yeah, that's a that's a good um, split to be at home. Is that would you say you come into your own on that long distance down to the fact that back in the early days of your laser racing, the the races were two hours long rather than the shorter 45 minutes nowadays. Um, I'm not sure I necessarily draw that correlation, but certainly our racing has changed fundamentally over the years. Back in the old days, two hours was a <clears throat> very normal race, two and a half hours. The longest race I can remember um, was in, at a national championship where it was three and a quarter hours long in a false four. It was brutal. Um you know, having a 45-minute beat with a six-kilogram weight jacket on and hiking hard the whole way, that, that, that was definitely brutal. I certainly remember racing Stuart Tilsley, Ben's dad, um, racing like that in, uh, in many, many years ago um, in races like that. Um, but, you know, character building, I believe the phrase is. I've heard stories of people be starting, you know, the second beat and they would be crying because uh, the beats were that long and they just want it to end sort of thing. That's why the oceans are so full of, full of our tears, yes. It was, <laughs> it was brutal. And what do you actually prefer? Do you prefer those long races or the shorter races nowadays? No, I, I much prefer the shorter races. Um, you know, one, one of the, the, the problems is a lot of races can become processions and... <clears throat> You know, as a consequence, if you're when you're back, you know, it's a good opportunity to catch up if it's a long race. But I'd much rather have many, many short races. During the um, lockdown, before uh, we first started selling again um, at Ox- at Oxford, um, we were doing a lot of just short course racing, rabbit starts, 400 meter beat, simple up and down. And even the back of the fleet was saying how much more they enjoyed it because even if they made a muck up. Uh, on one particular start or first speed, we would reset and we would be going again, and it's a lot more—it's a lot more enjoyable, a lot more enjoyable. I—I'm slightly torn between. I, I do agree with you. The the shorter races, you can come back, but I also think sometimes when I, I come into my own sort of that second half of the race, where I'm like, okay, I'm 
I've just found my own and and then it's oh there's the finish line <laughs> sort of oh, want another lap sort of thing sometimes yes and, and some of the short races can often be a bit too short you know often it's you know the target time is 50 minutes you end up having a sort of 35 minute race which is disappointing um you know the world's target time is normally 70 minutes um and you know when you start hitting the hour you're having two sometimes three races a day and that, that that's that's that um, takes it out of you but uh you know when you have the short races that that can be a bit disappointing yeah, I personally feel that an hour is that perfect compromise between the two-hour races you used to have back in the day and, like you said, a half-an-hour quite disappointing race where you don't get a proper spread of the fleet in a way. Yes, but, yes. And it changes your um, approach to risk-taking as well, um, particularly in the early days of, of doing the uh, uh, the shorter races. You know, People take much, much higher risk strategies than... Um, would be normal if you're doing a big course you can't just go out and bang the corner it'll never work yeah because it's so so much more spread out in the course begin the start lines must have also been a lot bigger back then they were yes we didn't normally sell with split fleets the biggest one i ever did was i think it was 228 boats on a single start line we had a start boat at each end of the line they set a mid Boy, which was quite a long way back from the um, actual start line for obvious reasons. And then the committee boat itself was a free-floating motor launch, which as soon as the guns went, it just went forwards at high speed to get out of our way. Um, and that's pretty awesome um, when you start. Uh, uh, you know, if you can lead a fleet that size and you're looking back behind you, it, it is pretty awesome as you go down that first reach. That of is... course, we also did triangle sausage courses in those days, not the uh, trapezoids we have now. That, that's incredible just to picture. I mean, most qualifiers we go to now you know, are around 200 boats, but they're split into three fleets. To have them all on the same start line, that that's a, must be carnage. Uh, yes, at times it was, yes. Um, but you, you have to have square lines. If you, if you have any bias, then uh, um, 200 boats doesn't fit into six boat lengths. No. And... Moving back to your racing, you you spent those few early years, like we were saying, in the early 80s. And then come 1985, you actually went to South America for three months. I did, yes. Yes, um, I was a, um, actually went on something called Operation Raleigh. Um, so I did three months in the Amazon, uh, surveyed um, a hectare of jungle for the people from the Smithsonian um, built a school building for an Indian village and put in clean water pumps for uh, two uh, other Indian villages. Um, fantastic time, huge memories even now of, of all the things which happened there, um, dealing with wildlife, particularly snakes. And, and back then in in sort of the 80s, there was a lot more, the Amazon wasn't as, it hadn't been torn down as much as it has nowadays. So it must have been completely out in the wilderness then? Uh, it, it, it was. We were given the choice of uh, where we were going to. It was going to take us two weeks by um, vehicle or because there was some gold mining had started up, we had the chance to fly in, which was, I can't remember how long the flight was, but it was it was nothing at all. And it's interesting going on a plane where, um, you know, jumbo jet and you've got uh, chickens on people's laps and things like that in cages. It's it's uh, 
it's quite a different uh, type of type of environment, and particularly when you're doing up, you're playing your thing. It's got Air Italia on the seatbelt, and you know that's probably secondhand from the states in the first place. So, uh, <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I've never heard of that before. So, people are flying with chickens in cages on their laps. Yes, oh yeah, quite a few people like that. Well, how else do you take your chicken back <laughs> home with you? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I I never sort of thought about that, but. No, that, that's a, that's incredible. I, I mean, I suppose that's how they they got into Britain. I mean, like you said, how else would they? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, because they they needed to get more chickens there because it was, um, you know, it, 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 it was very much frontier land. Um, you know, it was very much like a you know, traditional cow, cowboys and western town where you flew into. Um, it was quite a strange environment. I'm very pleased to get out of that and. Uh, Upriver, we were eight hours upriver from there, um, and you know, very well. It was a reserve. Um, we couldn't even get wood to burn on the, our side of the river. We had to cross the river to get wood to burn uh, because it had st- such strict rules. Quite rightly, I really. Uh, we're, and that—that's something from back in the, uh, you know, obviously in the eighties. And you think the profile that uh, climate change and sustainability has nowadays, and you know, it, it's it's understandably and necessarily it's very high profile now, but it still had profile then. It's just people weren't listening. Yeah, I think, like you said, people have started to listen over time, but maybe not not quick enough. But that's still an incredible thing, you know, thing to do to to go to the Amazon and live there for three months and you know build build sort of houses for the locals. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a school building, but yes, it's uh, yeah in in the jungle where it's, uh, it's it's about rain cover more than anything else. It doesn't get cold, um, but uh, yeah, over a beer I can bore you silly at times. What, <laughs> those stories. What was the most? Was there any moment that was quite frightening? Because there's a lot of dangerous animals out there. Uh, well, probably the most frightening time I was um, crossing a river. <clears throat> Sorry, beforehand, the guys from the Smithsonian had said the only thing you need, really need to be worried about is the anaconda because they will regurgitate something um, small to get something bigger. And I swam across this swollen river, climbed out the other side, and I was literally a metre away from a sleeping anaconda which had a lump in it from a, eating a tapir, which was, you know, the shoulder width was bigger than my shoulder width. So I was thinking, that could be interesting. <laughs> And that was the only scary moment. Well, there is another scary moment which we won't go into where someone had been accused of passing a false $50 US dollar bill, but that's a, a long, long story which I won't go into now. It's, uh, it's frightening when you when you think about, you know, the snakes that can engulf a whole human, but I'm sure some people won't want us to dive too much into that and get back to the sailing. So yeah. in that time, you, you then came back to the UK and bought your first house. And you sort of yeah. took a bit, bit, took a step away, really, from that international sailing and such. But you're still sailing, club sailing. Am I right in saying? Yes, I, I, I've you know throughout the time I've always owned a laser. But I've had spells on and off of campaigning. Um, so yes, eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight. I um, um, I went to the nationals. I think in eighty six and eighty seven. So didn't do anything in eighty eight, um, and then uh, got going again in eighty nine. And what actually kept you from keeping a laser and not, you know, changing to another class? 
Um, but it's the old adage about you need to do 10,000 hours uh, with, um, you know, with work because I've always been a self-funded sailor. Well, some sponsorship through work, but essentially I've been a self-funded sailor. Um, and um, sorry, I'm losing my thread there. Um, you know, being, being self-funded, it, I couldn't get, ever put the 10,000 hours in with another class. Um, and you know, if you were going to do an Olympic campaign, because I did think quite hard about doing a Finn campaign, I saw little point in doing it unless I was going to do it seriously and I never had the funding um, to be able to do a Finn campaign. Because you actually initially started work for Barclays Bank and it kind of done the opposite yep. thing to what Sam Whaley's done with Microsoft where he gave up his apprenticeship at Microsoft to pursue his dream of sailing. You actually done the opposite. Uh, yes, yes, uh, and um, yeah, I can't, it's hard for me to speak for for Sam, but I, I think the, um, the 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 level of funding which is available now gives you a certain amount of security, um, and um, as you can tell from yourselves, he also has uh, self-generated uh, sponsorship as well that he, he obtains. So, um, yeah, there are, I'm, I'm very jealous of the opportunities for um, the guys nowadays. You know, who knows whether I would have uh, where I may or may not have sat uh, with um, if, if there had been the funding, but we just didn't have that level of funding available. I, th- I think that's a, it's a huge part, especially in the early days. I mean, we're, not, we're still talking about when the laser wasn't an Olympic class, so, and before the lottery funding even came in. Sorry, the line cut out then. Oh, sorry. I was just saying that back in, when we're talking, it was before, you know, the... His class was an Olympic boat, and even before lottery funding came in across the board. Yes, the the, uh, you know, the lottery funding, which you know, the main source of funding, started in '95. Um, the laser only became Olympic in '96. It's always been a feeder class for the Olympic classes. If you look at the uh, ex laser sailors across, you know, the Finn, the Star, the Soling, the Tornado, a lot of uh, medalists from. Uh, who uh, in the past have been laser sailors. Uh, it, it, it's always had a very high profile, but uh, yes, being Olympic obviously is, is, is the pinnacle. And like you said, you've before you've raced against a lot of these guys that have, you know, even now the, the master sailing that you do, you're regularly racing against ex-gold medalists, ex-Fingold you know, Cup winners. Must You, you must walk in the, the master's boat park and... It must be incredible to see all these great sailors. Uh, it, oh, it is. It, it, it's, and, and, you know, it, it's, I always remember um, overhearing <clears throat> one of the Spanish Olympic gold medalists who, who someone was sort of questioning him about um, what's he sailing now because he, he's made a big name for himself in, in a number of different boats. And he just, just said, I'm a laser master sailor now. And that was how he described himself. Um, you know, we've got some great people have come into the class. It's it's really raised the game significantly. You know, we've got some very good sailors in the UK. Fantastic racing we have here. And you go overseas and we have some, you know, great time. But it's the beauty of the Masters is that it's, um, there is a social scene to it at all, which uh, as well, which, um, you know, the Olympics, it's seen is, is you know, the, the stakes are high. For us, it's all about enjoyment. Ultimately, um, it's, it's not. None of us are making our livings out of like, living out of sailing. I, I think it's something that I would like to do. In you know, when I'm a master sailor, is 
go you know continue the sailing because you're hanging around with people that you've been around for ages and it's a lot it sounds like it's a lot more relaxed atmosphere as well like you were just alluding to oh yeah yeah very much so yes you know we go to restaurants together as groups um it's it's fantastic and uh people have sailed against from the 80s regularly meeting in europe so uh yeah you get to know people quite well over the years and like you said, the the actual level of the competition and the people, they're very, you know, work very hard still. You say that you're not making a living out of the sport, but like we said before about the fitness that you still do, there's many other master sailors that still put in that time as well. Oh, right. You, you, everyone at the, um, you know, towards the front of the fleet put in a huge amount of time and effort. You, you, it's, it's hard work. We just don't get any funding to do it. We, <laughs> so this is a subtle difference, but we, um, yeah, it, it's, no one has an easy time. That's, you know, thing with lasers, you, you have to put the effort in. Yeah, and going back to the 90s, we were saying about, you know, you took a little bit of a break for a while from, from the high-end laser stuff. When did you actually get back into it in the early 90s? Uh, well, I started again in 89, and then my last sort of year of, of any sort of campaigning was in 94. Um, so in 95, I had my first child and um, you know, put a bit of time and effort into the family. Plus, uh, you know, I was becoming a master at that point as well. So uh, um, you know, I did my first master event in 97, um, and really, because of work, family commitments there's a limit to what you can do there's always been uh, three people in my marriage as my wife would say you know is the, the boat her and myself and every so often she has to remind me what the pecking order is <laughs> i'm sure you you sort of sometimes go oh, i wish i could sail a bit more <laughs> doesn't any sailor say that yeah you never sail too much but you're actually talking beforehand about in those sort of early 90s and well when you came back the sort of the fitness testing of the bleep test um you actually got some good scores on on the bleep test you were telling me oh yeah well yes i was also saying how uh it was a guy called richard stenhouse who uh, had significant natural strength it was absolutely phenomenal how strong he was on a natural basis when it came to things like the bleep test he was useless you'd get to about level 10 and then he would throw up i think every single time we did that but uh, for myself, I would get into the high 14s and at that point give up. I, I didn't like to turning the corners. I like running in straight lines, not uh, not turning corners. So agility wasn't as much as your forte. If it was in a straight line, you might have been able to get even higher results then. Ah, uh, who knows? Yeah. You can never know. That's not what the test is. The test is uh, it's an all-in test. Yeah, and uh, as well from that, it, there was a, a change, I suppose, in the approach there's sort of more sports science coming into play am i right in saying in those early 90s uh yes it was um i chose as i was leaving um the international scene is when it all started up with b cunningham and in uh, um chichester college of of having um you know blood being taken and going on oxygen machines just seeing um uh, the point where you become uh, anaerobic and putting more science in but it, it's it's gone forward massively there you know, he, he had already been involved in um, the boxing, British boxing and uh, British cycling, and then uh, the RWA thankfully uh, had the insight to uh, get him involved in sailing. And 
you know, uh, it, it will have gone on significantly since then. So obviously there's all the uh, physiotherapists and the uh, psychologists and everything else, which uh, everyone else who gets involved nowadays. You are talking about Pete Cunningham there, and you were saying about, as well, on the water, you know, they would take blood samples, even in the cold. Oh, yes, that was quite scary at times. Yes, you have a little capillary tube in a lab. It's quite, you know, on a running machine, it's quite easy to uh, um, have your finger pricked and the blood flows there. And it's, uh, but imagine a, a day, you know, a couple of hours out on the water in, uh, in March in Hailing Bay, and you try taking a bit of blood out of your thumb with some finger, you know, um, pinprick test and uh, it takes a long time many jabs before you can generate any blood at all in your fingers it's all sort of shriveled up and all wrinkled up it's <laughs> not not the easiest yeah. time is it no no you used to come back with like a pin cushion your thumb and it would hurt i, I mean i've I worked with uh, pete's brother sometimes bob cunningham down in down here in devon and i know they're all into sort of their windsurf so i believe I mean, Pete was doing, I think, for the Singapore team for a while as well, most recently. Oh, quite possibly. I, I've not been involved in that side of things for a long time. My recollection, and I may be wrong on this, I don't think Pete did any sailing at all at that point. Okay. It was purely from an academic point of view, he was involved, and because you know, he, he was one of the uh, sort of leaders in, in, um, you know, in, um, you know, you got involved as one of the early leaders in sailing. Yeah, and you briefly mentioned as well, sort of about the the lottery funding coming in in '95. Am I right in saying? What? I, my recollection it was '95. It was certainly there in '96 proper. But yeah, I think it came in '95. But was there uh, then with the laser as well at the same time becoming an Olympic class? Was there a huge shift as well in terms of the class becoming a lot more professional? I, I, most definitely. Um, as soon as it went to Olympic, it it stepped up a gear and unfortunately coincided with when I was stepping away. But um, yes, you know, you'd be thinking 95, Ben won the trials. Um, uh, deservedly so. It was um, a very tough um, competition for him. Um, his last race with you know, Hugh Stars, quite a classic one in itself. Um, and um, I suppose he, he's, he's done quite well since. And you actually took part in those uh, trials for the 96 games I did yes um, it's uh, whilst it wasn't uh, you know I, I never entered because I had a sort of a three month old child with me etc um, with any intentions of uh, um, winning but um, the first Olympic class for the class you couldn't not be there in my eyes you know, it was a, a must go to event especially with the amount of years you had put put into it prior to what, what would you say the biggest changes were from the the when you first stepped into those eighty two Europeans in Greece to the when you stepped away again in sort of ninety four. Um, I can't remember. the the new well all the new roping systems have to come in. That's the biggest change. But I, I guess you know the techniques and, and particularly you know Ben Martin and Ben were sort of forerunners of of selling with these slack vangs. In the past, we used to. Uh, have tight fangs on the on the runs, and um, you know we all know how much easier it is with like that. They were the forefront of, of that development. That's probably the biggest single development. You know, hiking hard and steering precisely, etc. That um, you know that 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 doesn't change. 
Um, but the um, offwind is where the, the big changes came about, or on the run more particularly. Um, I remember one of the nationals where I kept overtaking Ben, it was in 97, I've kept overtaking Ben on the reaches, and he couldn't understand why, but it's only because he was popping his fang too much for the reaches on a triangle sausage course, but uh, um, on the runs, you know, it's phenomenally quick. Um, was it when you first stepped into laser, did you have this inkling, or you know, did you think at all that he would go on to be such a dominant sailor in not only just Olympic sailing, but going on to America's Cup? Um, it's hard to say. You, you could see he was he was good, but um, you know, it's the subsequent years. You know, the, the dedication he put in. You know, he has achieved so much. Got so much admiration for what he's achieved. It's just fantastic being you know, able to witness his career. And was there anything in the boat park, or maybe on like you said about the Vang? Um, you know, he'd pop it a lot more on the downwinds where. You, you used to sell it a lot tighter. Was there anything you'd do in the boat park that's different? Uh, no, not really. I, I think the big development, when the new roping systems came in, that's when things fundamentally changed because it was so much easier to um, do small changes. You know, regularly up a beat nowadays, you know, I'll probably change my cunning maybe about seven times, unless it's honking, um, seven, eight times, something like that, on a, just a normal beat in the past you just didn't have the systems to be able to do that and like changing your vang you know before um you know the classic was andy brown he used to jump onto his boom to put his vang on um we just didn't have purchase systems you know you know with three to one there's a limit to what you can do eventually went to a four to one yeah i know with I've, i've jumped in a club boat locally to me back in the day and it didn't have any of the xd kit on it i was like how how does this work sort of thing and just talk me through on so coming up to a lure mark how would you get the control lines on uh well the cunning you just you just pull hard and use your feet on the cockpit um and uh, you wouldn't be able to change your uh, outhaul um until you had got around the mark because you couldn't reach your boom because the rope wasn't allowed to go up to the mast in, in the very early days um, you used to have a quick little technique of pulling either side of the cleat to get it through. And then um, with the uh, Vang, you used to time it with a wave and go for the compression going up a wave. You could um, you know, snap in as much as you could and um, you, know, you, you step up and you'd bounce your whole body weight onto the boom. We see mark roundings nowadays where people are rounding the mark very slick and doesn't look like anything sort of changed because it's that slick. But Back in the day, was a there must have been a huge difference in time from say three boat lengths into a mark to three boat lengths out of a mark. Well, back in the day, it was only two boat lengths. Um, mm. So yes, uh, um, yeah. At times, there were some big pileups of marks, um, but it, 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 I suppose the difference was that everyone was subject to the same issues, and therefore you still had that natural. Um, stop, start, and pacing when people were doing the adjustment. So it, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't ultimately it wasn't that much different um, because everyone was subject to the same situation. A lot of time to be gained. A lot of time to be gained there on those mark roundings. Oh, oh no, exactly. And um, yeah, mark roundings. Well, mark roundings are always critical. But uh, um, if you could just uh, delay a short period of time to make some of the key adjustments. 
you could make some significant gains um, just by, uh, uh, you know, it's like all, all mark rounding. They are always key, key points where you can make or lose um, significant places in one go. So, uh, For yeah, sure. it's part of the game at the time. The game's slightly different now, and it's so much better having the roping systems we have nowadays. Um, and going back to the 96, sort of, the Olympics happened, and then you were saying about that sort of similar time to when you were, you know, going into master sailing, and 97, you'd done your first Worlds done in Chile, am I right in saying? Yes, that was a that was a great event. Um, it was the first time I, you know, sailed in conditions where the waves were at the top of the sail numbers in a force two, two and a half, so we weren't even hiking desperately hard. And our biggest challenge was going downwind um, because the boom would swing on board. You'd stay on a wave for a huge amount of time. And we were all being done for a second pump on the same wave. It might be literally five minutes later from the first pump um, because the wave was so big. But, uh, yeah, we, we a lot of people got uh, a yellow flag. and It was very difficult not to try and sustain a wave to let it go at times. Those, those Pacific rolling waves really... Causing oh, havoc for them. Yeah, the, the classic Pacific rolling waves. Um, we didn't have any windy races, unfortunately. It was a bit frustrating. Um, not not full-on windy. That, that would have been exciting. I know that, that feeling of when you catch a wave right and the boom comes into the middle and you, you don't know which way it's going to go. It's quite quite a sketchy few, couple of seconds. And with those waves oh, out in the Pacific, it must be even worse. Well, in, in Mounts Bay, we've had that in the past. I always remember an event where it's been blowing gale force all week. It stopped for a Saturday down to a force six, and it was back up to gale force on the Sunday again. But um, every single leg, you know, apart from base, every leg, the boom was just inboard all the time. It was phenomenal. Um, every, every, beam, every boat, you know, everyone was disappearing from each other. We were even disappearing from each other downwind. You, you'd lose sight of boats around you that's mad that's mad and you're actually very close to winning though just missing out on oh yeah no, world, yeah it? came second it's, it's yes it's it's one of those only ones if if only if only um, we've all had races like that but uh yeah i was i was close to winning that one but second is yeah at least i'm on the podium I was on the podium then. And then you you got back into sort of that master sailing in, in the late 90s and early 2000s where you were pretty um, unbeatable, really. Yeah, for a period I was. I was Competition's tougher now, I think is probably also fair to say. But yes, at one point in the year 2000, I was uh, pretty chuffed with the titles I had all at the same point in time. Yeah. You, I can't remember all the, the national titles you had, but just list some of the, the countries that you won that oh uh, yeah well uh, in that year i was uh world european and then national titles the uk france belgium and uh, holland all at the same point in time so yeah i, I was on a bit of a roll at that point that, that is that is something to hold that where you're national champion in four different countries and european and world uh, champion as well and am i right in saying you've actually won the uk nationals more than anybody else at, at Masters level, not, not at yeah. senior level. Yeah. No, but at Masters, at Masters level, yes. And the same for the Masters Europeans as well. Yes, as being outright winner, yes. Yeah. Which, that in itself, you must look back at sort of your career and go, okay, well, I was late, you know, late starting in sailing, but 
I've achieved a lot. Yeah, well, it keeps me going, put it that way. Yeah. It keeps me going. And what, what would you say the, the biggest change from the Masters, you said it's more competitive nowadays. When would you say it's got more competitive and how it's got more competitive? Um, I, I suppose it's in the last 10 years it's got um, a lot more competitive. You know, there have been quite a few um, <clears throat> ex-Olympians have uh, come into it. Uh, into the um, master sailing as well so there are a lot of very good um, sailors and, and um, professional coaches quite regularly turn up um, in the great grandmaster of the fleet I, or grandmaster should I say the fleet I sell and we've got three uh, Olympic gold medalists are regularly competing so uh, and those guys you know they're, they're smart guys you can see why they got their medals but it's always good to be racing next. to be racing against Olympic medalists and you know, America's Cup sailors as well. There's a few in the fleet, isn't there? And some other interesting characters. Yes, well, even just at home, you think we've got people like Tim Law. Um, he's got a fantastic sailing pedigree, one to be very proud of. And, you know, an AC helmsman is, uh, you can, you only get uh, the opportunity to <clears throat> helm a boat like that if, you're, um, if you uh, have a worldwide reputation. Another story you were telling me about was a, a guy called Peter Seidenberg, and oh, he's yes. got an interesting uh, backstory you were telling me about. Yes, I was going to say, not only do we have uh, a number of good sailors, but uh, well, Peter Seidenberg is, is a fantastic sailor. He's actually now aged at 82, and he's won more titles than anyone could imagine. Um, but uh, yes, he, he comes from uh, East Germany originally, and he and a friend built a canoe and in the middle of winter escapes East Germany, uh, went to Denmark and he eventually went on to the States and became a US citizen. But, um, or Canada, I think he went to first off. But um, yes, it's something which uh, most listeners will probably uh, not quite understand what uh, uh, the days of communism were like and, and the, uh, how you know, the impact it had. Um, in fact, there was a shoot-to-kill policy um, and people who go to uh, ever race at Wanamunda, um, certainly last time I was there, it was still very evident where you had uh, a Western democracy and lots of hotels, and on the opposite side of the river, you had the patches of land where the gun emplacements were. Um, and you can't see where all the barbed wire was down there with the river, but uh, yeah, it's very scary times for the people on the opposite side of the river there. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I've been to Wanamunda before, but I. I, I obviously didn't pay attention enough, but I know next time I'll go, I'd definitely look out for that. And so it must have been right on the east-west German border then. It, it, it was, yes. There's stories of from one of them a week, um, I guess from the uh, <clears throat> 70s or 80s, that a uh, Swiss tornado capsized, got into difficulties and drifted into East Germany. It took two days for the crew to be released back to West Germany and a further week for their um, boat to be released. So, uh, yes, serious times. But, uh, and um, it just shows how... Peter Seidenberg, my wife, um, gave me a book two Christmases or three Christmases ago where um, it had a whole series of stories about escapees from East Germany, and he was his story was in that book. Um, that was quite a, a unique thing to see. Um, and there, there'll be, there, there are all sorts of other people who've got some fantastic stories. Um, do you remember what the book was called? Uh, 
no, but that's probably also partly because it had a German title, I think. Oh. <laughs> so it's half in German and half in English. Well, it's repeating German and English, but uh, um, but it's, it's, it's certainly uh, you know, well worth a read to sing the, the stories of so many people who uh, risked everything to get into the West. Yeah, and it, it's, um, it's, it's a different time. You can't, I mean, I can't even comprehend what it must have been like. I know at school, learned a bit about how you know the Russians were back in the day and how it was like in East Germany, but you just I think you just don't can't comprehend it unless you were and there at the time sort of thing. Well, and well, it, whilst I grew up and knowing about it, I think unless you were the other side of the wall, that um, it would be very difficult to actually understand it. I think you have to have experienced it see the true horror of it um you know we've been so lucky it's um you know we've always had our freedom in this country yeah no it is great that you know we are privileged that we we haven't had anything like that in this country and getting back to laser sailing you're still you know laser sailing at a high level and most recently you've been doing sort of the the, the qualifiers and the nationals and which you didn't do for a few years. How come you got back into doing those? Um, well, I became class measurer, um, and I guess that was one of the things. And um, I think one of, you know, from the committee's point of view, one of the things we want to do is, is to improve the level of engagement. Um, so that's with the elite end of the class, but also with the grassroots. And one of the only ways you can... You know, connects as if you participate. Um, so it'd be silly of me not to. Plus, I think from a, as you get older, your your um, uh, focus around you know, the need to win loses a bit because you can't go out against the likes of Elliot, etc., and uh, expect to compete against them. Um, you know, they're just so much faster. It's it's uh, impressive to watch and uh, frustrating not to be able to compete. So it's just great chance here. And that's the other beauty of you. Know, how often, you know, how, how many sports do you get the chance to sell against the best in the world on the same star line? You know, there's no other sport gives you that opportunity. Um, that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about sailing. You know, the best in the world are up against the uh, those who are not quite so good. Yeah, on last week's episode with Tony Woods was also mentioning that another master sailor who does the qualifiers, and I think it's great when master sailors turn up at the qualifiers because you know they're just as you know they're deep down they're competitive and they want to win and you know they're also quick yeah well i guess we, we all put time and effort into it so uh, yes um but yeah it, it, it's it's it, you know as i've said before it's just a fantastic sport um can't get too much of it and you mentioned that you're the class measure and you're also on the Eurilka committee and this year is actually a special year for the Ilka class, where it celebrates its 50th birthday. That, that's right, yes, because the, you know, the original concept of the weekend was first launched in 1969 and named the TGIF, so thank God it's Friday um, at that point in time. It went into production as the Laser in 1970, and the International Laser Class Association was founded in 1971. So... This is actually the 50th anniversary of the International Laser Class Association, and uh, there are going to be a number of events. Um, I'm just about to join a uh, subcommittee for, of the of ILCA for a global event, um, but uh, we've already had discussions around uh, 
events in the UK linking to the nationals and also the master nationals. So I think watch this space that there will be things happening and hopefully things which will excite people. Uh, that, yeah, that, that sounds absolutely fantastic that there'll be, you know, some special events going on this year. I'm sure, you know, as soon as we know more details, it'll be published on the UKLA website. And it's uh, you're saying it's more the it's the actual class association, not the boat then? Correct. Yes, yes. So the, the boat, you know, as with anything which is brand new, it, it was a slow, int- or a, say a fairly slow introduction. It took a year before the class was formed, but uh, it very, very quickly grew initially in the States and then worldwide. You know, the first World Championships was in 1974, also the year of the first um, UK Championships, I believe, 1974, where... What people probably don't know is the first ever UK national champion was a um, girl called Wendy Fitzpatrick. She beat all the men. There was only the standard rig at that point in time. And that's something to be uh, uh, certainly to be recognised and commended. That, that's incredible. So the first, that's, a, that's sort of a, one of those questions that you get in a, in a quiz. That it, it's, uh, that's incredible, the fact that a, a girl won a... The first nationals. I did not know that myself. No, well, some of the female sailors we've got in this country from pre-Olympic points, we've got some some fantastic sailors, Roberta Hartley, Anne Keats, to mention too, and uh, um, you know they they have both uh, on the world level have both achieved fantastic results. Um, they just don't happen to travel anymore, yeah. or not very much at any rate. No, it would be great to have, you know, one of them or both of them on to on the podcast to talk about their experiences and how it differs to, to now. And and just so people, being the class measurer, can you summarise what the difference is between the class legal and non-class legal boats? Yes, well, it's a very long story, but I, I guess the key thing is that, you know, Laser performance didn't meet its commitments under the class construction manual and it's lost its status as an approved builder, which is a requirement of world sailing and the International Laser Class Association. Um, and this comes about uh, you know, from the need to sustain the um, quality and the fundamental rule for the Olympics. You know, the fundamental rule is essentially there to ensure that every boat's identical and uh, we go out and we have fair racing. Um, unfortunately, if, if people can't meet the construction manual requirements, then um, uh, yeah, they, they fail. The good news, though, is that uh, we have Ovingtons are now fully accredited and they are building boats. There are three manufacturers across Europe. That's Devoti Sailing and Nordavela as well. Nordavela um, is Italian. Uh, Devoti is uh, sort of Poland-Czech border. Um, and... Um, the PSA, the Australian boats, are also available in the UK. I believe they're waiting for a container as we speak. The second-hand market of lasers is very popular in the UK. What For people that maybe don't know the differences between an Ovington and a PSN and laser performance, what's the biggest thing to look out for to make sure it's class legal? Well, in, in terms of the actual different manufacturers, all their boats, dare I say it, are the same. The only thing which can change, perhaps, is the build quality, the, you know, the finish on, on anything. Um, in terms of all measurements, etc., they will be absolutely identical. In fact, talking to Chris Turner, uh, you know, he was saying in terms of the, uh, the, rig he, the jig he's set up for Master Rake, you know, 
you have a choice of it's a bit like the old Model T Ford of colours. You know, he does one mast rake. Uh, the, t- they've tightened up on the tolerances quite significantly. Um, in the old days, you know, with the LP bows, we would always have to check the mast rakes because they would vary quite significantly, and everyone would always have their own favourite mast rakes. Um, the key thing in terms of the, the easiest things to focus in on are the hulls and the sails because they're the, the the absolute fundamentals. For the hull in the rear of the cockpit, there will be a world sailing sticker, um, which will also quote the sail number and the hull number. And for the sails, there will be a button in the tack of the sail, uh, so up near the Cunningham control. Um, and that... Um, button will be red for all boat, all sails apart from the standard, the Mark II standard sail, and for that it is orange. But all other ones are red, and on that button it will say Ilka. So they're the two absolutely key things to look for. There are other aspects because there are now QR codes um, attached to the spars and the foils. Um, but the key thing is that all of the things like foils and spars, etc., they come out of approved suppliers so it's not just the manufacturers who are um have to go through the accreditation with world sailing and the international laser class association it's also all the suppliers because we don't want to suddenly find that uh, the bend characteristics and consequently the performance characteristics of masts vary significantly um, you'll never have them being exactly the same it's a concept of manufacturing nothing will be a hundred percent identical but we want to just take out the um, you know, the risk of, of uh, things not leading to fair racing between sailors. I presume if anybody does have any further queries on that, because it, it would be devastating if you bought a non-legal sail or boat and then turned up at a qualifying not being able to race, I, I presume they'll be able to contact you with any questions? Certainly. I, I get a regular flow of questions around um, details, you know, um, around what is class legal um, and what isn't. Um, we are also uh, being made aware of people who have moved into the class looking to go down the youth development pathway um, routes from other classes only to have found that they actually bought a non-class legal boat and they've had to ditch that quite quickly and buy a class legal boat. Um, and certainly that we were aware of that happening before last year's nationals. At Weymouth, which was very disappointing that they'd been hoodwinked into buying something which was not class legal. That is very disappointing. But it's been great to talk to you, Alan, about you know, a huge range of subjects. You know, going back to you know the seventies, the eighties, going through all the all the eras, and especially telling us about now the laser performance. You know, the the boats that aren't class legal and the boats that are class legal. That's really nice for you to sum it up but thanks again for coming on this week oh thank you very much indeed for having me it's been great fun yeah I, I can't wait to be racing against you on the water hopefully at the qualifiers in march yes i, I saw the first qualifiers already being cancelled but that's because it's before the um you know the, it's going to be before the 8th of march but i'm hoping with uh, the success we had at last year's nationals that it will be possible within the um, law to hold the events at Weymouth. Um, it requires a lot of volunteers, and so we're very grateful for the volunteers who get involved, but we very much hope to be able to hold the racing uh, when we get down there. And certainly I've got a lot of plans for this season. I had a lot for last year, which 
actually didn't happen. But this year I've got a lot of plans and I just hope that uh, they all come to fruition. Yeah, the, the volunteers are a huge part. But like I say, it's been great to chat to you. And um, But that's it for this week on An Hour of Flower. But do check out the other episodes that have gone out if you've not heard them all. And they will be coming out every single week. So make sure you stay tuned for that. But thanks again to Alan.